We've been working in a series uh, called A Glimpse of the Messiah. And we're going to close down this series uh, today uh, by looking at a passage here in Hebrews chapter 3 is where we're going to start. And as we've been doing throughout this whole series here, we see these uh, quotes that the writer of Hebrews uses from the Psalms. And so we'd like to start off in Hebrews chapter 3 uh, with the quote, and then we're going to flip over to Psalm 95 is actually the text uh, where we'll see that, where, where that quote originated. But in Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. We see this, this, this quote here, and it's a quote from uh, Psalm 95. And I invite you to go ahead and turn over now to Psalm 95 and This is almost a word-for-word quote. Some of the phrases are exactly word-for-word, and and a couple of the phrases are a little bit of a paraphrase from the uh, back half of Psalm 95, kind of verses uh, 7 through 11, and we'll get to that in point number 2 here. And and actually, not only in Hebrews 3, but also then Hebrews 4 goes on to explain a little bit of this concept of God at rest. And that's really the, the theme here and the, the title this morning is we see a glimpse of the Messiah, we see a God of rest and, and what that means. And when we look at Psalm 95, though, what we see here, this psalm is a call to worship. And so again, the psalms were uh, primarily a song book. Uh, for the Israelites, and we see this call to worship. You're going to see that from the very first verses. And uh, Hebrews chapter 4 lets us know that, that this psalm was actually written by David. And this song was used a lot uh, during the Feast of the Tabernacles, or sometimes called the Feast of the Booths. And the Feast of the Tabernacles uh, was, was one of the Jewish holidays, one of the main Jewish holidays in which they, they had this week-long feast and, and they would actually like camp out in these booths. And, and, and what they were remembering was they were re- remembering the wanderings in the wilderness. You're going to see that in Psalm 95 in this call to worship as you see references back to those times when they were wandering in the wilderness those 40 years and how God worked and, and led them through that period and into the promised land. And so, so that's kind of the context here uh, that we see as we jump into this passage. And, and so we're going to start here in verse 1 of Psalm 95. And, and the first point is to worship. Celebrate your awesome creator God. Point number one here is to worship. Celebrate your awesome creator God. David starts off with, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Starts off with this this call to gather. O come. Everybody come together corporately as we, as we celebrate what God has done. And so the call is to, to draw near, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us lift up our praises to the, to the Lord through song. 
We see a, a part of worship and, and the celebration so often is that of music. As it was within the festival of the, of, of the booth, uh, the festival of the tabernacles, as it is throughout worship here today. And we see why do we, why do we spend so much time in our worship by lifting up our, our praises through song? Well, because we see over and over the command to do that. And for many of you, that it's just a wonderful time. And let's be honest, for a lot of you, it's just a wonderful celebration and it sounds great. And then for some of us, he also provides some provision. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Sing to the Lord and let's make a joyful noise. And, and really the idea is let's call out loudly. That's really what the, what the idea of the, the Hebrew phrase is, making a joyful noise. Let's call out loudly to the rock of our salvation. We're going to see that phrase. He actually will use it again in a couple of, of verses from now. But it's literally a statement of saying that we should be calling out in celebration and praise of our great God. Singing it. Praising Him. Even the phrase, the rock of of our salvation, I think, is here we see a, a reference, a, a metaphor, if you will, is as they were, remember, as they were wandering through the wilderness, and as they were struggling to, to have food, and, and some of the complaints and the provision that came uh, after the complaints, and, and then they didn't have water, and so God called Moses, to, to, said, take your staff, and what did he say? To strike the what? The rock. To provide water for the people. When he says the rock of our salvation, I, I think we see a little bit of a reference of that again back in those times of, of wanderings. That, that God is actually our salvation. There was nothing magical about the rock. Water doesn't really come from rocks. You know that, right? But it was God's provision for them. The God of ours, the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us come together corporately to lift up our praise, to lift up our gratitude, our thanksgiving for who God is and what God has done. We come in thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Let us call out loudly in our songs of praise. One of the things I so appreciate here in this place is that understanding of, of the worshiping and song, the calling out loudly. I don't know about you, but even as, as through this worship set, even just a little bit ago, as we get to the, to the climax of the, of, I think it was the third song, and just the, the goosebumps that comes as we're here, a mass of people calling out loudly praise to God. Amen. That's, that's what God is saying as we celebrate, as we lift up our praise. For the Lord, verse 3, for the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. I, I think here is a a little bit of a, a psalms. We, we see a lot of poetry throughout the psalms of the lyrics of the songs. And I, I think this is a great a poetic way of, of really acknowledging that, that truly God is the only true 
God. That he is a great God, that he is king over all the other gods. And you need to understand the context of that period of of wanderings in the wilderness. And and the pagans, they had their gods, little g-gods. And and what was interesting is their gods were were usually attached to, to different parts of creation. The God of the sea, the God of the land, the God of the harvest, the God of... And on and on, many, many, many to thousands of gods, little g-gods in which they would, would worship too. And here we see the psalmist is saying, no, 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 our God is a great God. He is the king over, he is the God. He is the king, he is the sovereign, he is the one who reigns. These are nothing in comparison to the greatness of our God. It's really the idea of verse 3 and And he goes on to explain, he says, In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. In his hands, in his hand are the depths of the sea. As low as the bottom of the sea, it all fits in the hand of God. The highest of mountains, which we would know today as Mount Everest, From Mount Everest to the lowest of the abyss in the ocean, it's all contained within the hand of God. That's how big God is. All of the highest to the lowest all fits within God's hand. And then he goes on in verse 4 and gives more explanation. He says, uh, in his hand are the depths of the earth. And the heights of the mountains are also, verse 5, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So still we see with the hand of God, you see the heights, you see the depths, but he also goes, I think he's, he's describing the breath then of, of, of creation. The sea, he created the sea. The land, he created the land. Whether you have sea or land, the the earth is composed of roughly two-thirds water, one-third land. We see both of that contained, whether it's the height or the depth, or left and right, sea to land, all of which we see created fits within God's hand. Do you catch it? Do, do, Do you see the analogy, the example that they're giving? That's how great our God is. The more that we understand the magnitude and the greatness of God, the easier it is to come together and to celebrate that awesome creator, God. That's the call to worship here in these verses. Verse 6, then he sums up again. O come, O come, gather together corporately. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Oh, come, let us worship. Let us ascribe to God. Let us know and adore God. Literally, the word worship means to bow, to lower ourselves. Some of the words, to bow down, to declare, to show, to prostrate, to fall. That, that's, that Hebrew word for worship is, is what that means. Come, let us worship. Let us bow down. Before the Lord, let us kneel before him. 
We see here a, a call to our outward expression of worship. And, and I think that's what we see as an outward reflection, hopefully, of an inward heart of worship for God. Pastor Tim kind of touched on some of this last week, but I, I thought it's worth mentioning because if we're talking about this, this uh, idea of worship, and as we talk about, uh, about celebrating and worshiping our God, and not just corporately on Sundays, because for many, if you're like me, um, just be real honest, this is the easy time to worship God, is it not? As we come in together, uh, one of the things I love is there is an expectation as you come in of worshiping our God in this place. And, and may that always be the case. And, but sometimes it's a little more difficult in my personal quiet times and throughout the week. And we see some, some different examples and I thought it was worth mentioning. Here's, here's some things that, uh, some ways to enhance your worship. Maybe throughout this coming week, if you're struggling, if, if things are starting to seem stale, and we're struggling with this worship, here are some ways to enhance our worship. Uh, number one is, is by changing our posture. We saw in the psalm last week, we see in the psalm this week of, of, of changing our posture. At times, it, it'll be lifting up our hands in worship. And at other times, it, it may be actually of, of taking our knee, of bowing down in worship. One of the things I, I encourage you to do this week is to, to, to freshen things up a little. This, it, when, you, when you come to pray throughout this week, find a spot alone by yourself and actually get down on your knees. And, and actually get in a posture no prayer. And I'm not saying that you have to, to do this all the time. I'm not saying that you have to bow down to pray. I'm not saying you have to close your eyes to pray. I'm not saying any of those things. But for me, sometimes just doing it differently and doing it as we see commanded in Scripture here at times is to kneel before our, our Lord. Our posture, number two, is, is music. Find yourself some, some, some really solid praise music. Have that playing throughout the house, through, throughout the week. Have that praying even in your time of personal worship and, and just to be listening and singing along. Have it in the, in the car as you're driving. And, and you may have different styles of music in that, and that's fine. But, but to make a concerted effort to do that, I'm, I'm going to put in a shameless plug here. Vertical Church Band just came out with a new album last week. It's great. Been listening to it here all, the week, all weekend. And things like that. Number three is Scripture of spending time in God's word, encountering God through his word. And then I've already referenced a little bit, but in prayer, and one of the things I would suggest is try praying through scripture. Taking a passage of scripture and then praying through that past passage of scripture, pray through that word by word or phrase by phrase as it says, and Lord, I'm offering this to you. Lord, help me to, to apply this in my life. Lord, I echo the sentiments of this phrase or however that is and praying that back to the Lord. Posture, music, scripture, prayer. Five is solitude. Solitude. This is one of those things that used to be a, a, a more common spiritual discipline, but I think many times we've gotten away from it a little bit of getting away and being still. 
and maybe getting away and just reading through and then meditating on a verse or passage and just being quiet and allowing God to use his word as his Holy Spirit speaks to us through his word. Solitude. Number six, fasting. Fasting, where we take times, seasons, moments where we, where we give up of something, usually food, in order to pray and to devote that time with enhancing our relationship with the Lord of fasting. And then number seven, this really throughout the all of them though, you want to enhance your worship. Take a good hard look at your attitude. Thanksgiving, gratitude. Sometimes as, as you struggle with an attitude, or a, as we like to call in our house, an attitude adjustment, sometimes it helps me just to sit down and say, what are, what are 20 things that I appreciate about God? What are 20 things or 10 things where I've seen God work this week? And actually writing them down and taking some time and thinking through that, and all of a sudden you'll see how that'll change my perspective, how the gratitude just naturally flows out of that. As I, as I, instead of focusing on what I don't have, I'm focusing on what God has provided, and I'm trusting that God knows what I need. Our attitude. Just a few ways. You may think of some others. But we see definitely here through the first six verses this call to worshiping God and, and to worship God in and, and, and song and, and in changing of posture and these, these different ways as both corporately and individually. And, and he doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 7. It says, for he is our God. We see this personal, possessive, he is our God, he is my God. There is a claim of, of ownership of both that he is my God and I am his. And you see that in the next phrase. He says, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his land. Literally what he's saying is he's my God, he is my shepherd. I am the sheep that is following this shepherd. We see this, that I am worshiping you and I'm worshiping you not just in song, not just in, in, in a loud declarations of, of praise and worship, which we're commanded to do, but I'm also worshiping you through obedience, through following the good shepherd. Role of the shepherd, he would, he would protect the flock, he would feed the flock, he would take them to the green pastures, he would provide the water, he, he, would, he would care, he would keep them together, for, keep them from wandering off and all of the analogy that we see of shepherd to sheep, and, and that's the statement being made that I am following that shepherd. This is my God, my shepherd. You know, as we talk about celebrations... Um, many of us, I'm sure, have just seen what probably the world would say is one of the biggest celebrations that take place. And this celebration is one of those that, that happens every four years. How many of you saw the opening ceremonies of the Olympics here on, on Friday evening? So a number of us watched the opening ceremonies and and we always enjoy that, and so we had all the kids in, and lots of food, and had a big party, and, 
And as you see, typically what you see is the host country of the Olympics will, will put on this, this massive celebration and, and go in all kinds of debt to pay for it and everything there, which evidently is still continuing. But, but this, this wonderful expression, and so often you see as they will then highlight kind of theme throughout these ceremonies, they'll, they'll highlight different things about their country and and about what's going to take place in the Olympic Games in the next uh, 14 to 17 days after that. And, but we were told here, as we were watching the opening Olympics in Rio, that, uh, that unlike others where they were highlighting their country, in, in Rio for this Olympics they were highlighting the world. Anybody hear that? Where they said, we're going to highlight the world. And, and as they did, they did different things to express where they would think back and appreciate what has taken place, and they, and they were trying to highlight things that were going on around the world, and, and we saw unbelievable uh, fireworks, and, and, and song, and, and dancing, and lights, and, and special effects, and, and all that took place in this just magnificent celebration. Uh, and, and then that is culminated by the lighting of the Olympic torch. Did anybody see the light? We, we fell asleep. We missed it. <laughs> we were just all celebrated out, I guess. But uh, <laughs> we actually missed it. And I woke up and then turned off the TV and went back to sleep. But uh, the world's expression of celebration. So let me ask you. What is your celebration of your God? How is your worship, your celebration of your God? Think back over this past week. We, we are quick to, to, to celebrate in many ways and, and many different things, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with, with that at, at times and in the right place and the right measure. But how much more should be our celebration of our God? How's your worship, your celebration of your God? What do you appreciate? What are you thankful for your God? Even now as you think about some of those things, just tell him that right now. Make it your goal this week to continue that each day of this coming week. We continue on now. Number two here. If you're taking notes, is don't miss out. Soften your heart to avoid God's just wrath and experience his rest. Soften your heart to avoid God's just wrath and experience his rest. The bottom of, of verse 7 there we pick up. And then we see our quote here from Hebrews as well. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. So we see today, we see it. it's a time word, right? It's not tomorrow, it's not next week, but right now, today, if you hear his voice, literally saying, hey, listen up right now. Listen to what he has to say. The call, there's an immediacy to this phrase. 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. Do not be hard-hearted. Literally, I, I, I turn that to a, to a positive expression. Soften your heart. Keep your heart soft and pliable, willing to, to hear, to listen, to apply. As we talked before, this is a call to worship. This was for the Feast of the Tabernacles and a reflection of the wanderings in the wilderness. And so we see some, some very specific references now to that time of wandering in the wilderness. As he says, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. And on the day at Massa in the wilderness. Meribah, the Hebrew word literally means contention. There's two different references where we see this word used in the, in the Old Testament. And, and one was in um, Exodus 17.7. And in Exodus 17.7, we see both the phrase Meribah and Massa. We see contention and Massa means, means testing. And, and, and this was the point in, in, where, where the children of Israel were without food and they, they kept calling out to God and complaining and grumbling because they were hungry. And so God provided in miraculous way with manna. And he didn't just provide right then, but we're going to see that manna would continue through those 40 years where God was providing that, that food, that nourishment, that, that sweet bread that came from heaven and manna literally means, what is it? They've never seen anything like it before. And so God provides manna. And of course, the children of Israel were so excited about God's provision that they started complaining because they didn't have anything to drink now. And so God tells Moses, I just referenced earlier, God says, now take your staff, strike the rock, and, and provide, and the water will flow for them. But he says, what, the two words, Meribah. Contention, massa, testing. Literally, they were putting God to the test. The term Meribah also is used in, in Numbers chapter 20. Numbers 20, 13, we see that same phrase. And this is after wandering in the wilderness many, many years and after the death of, uh, of uh, Moses' sister Miriam. And, and we see again the people were, were grumbling and, and, and testing God and they complained again and were starting this, this uprising against and, and God tells Abraham to go and speak to the rock and, and, and bring forth water and, and Moses unfortunately goes out and then strikes the rock twice and because of that incident he was not allowed to enter into the promised land. So why do we say all that? Well, that's the context. That's the reference that's being made here. And, and so what the psalmist is saying is, is don't harden your heart like they did back then. As we celebrate the, this wandering in the wilderness and God's provision, remember, though, there was a negative side to this. The reason why they wandered for those, that period of time, those 40 years, is because of their lack of belief, because of the grumbling and testing of God. And on the day of Mass in the wilderness, when your fathers, verse 9, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Do you see it? Do you see the frustration there? When, when, when they put God to the test, when they said, we must have proof. And he says, I just showed you multiple times that I'm going to care for you. 
whether pulling you out of Egypt, whether the Red Sea, whether providing manna, and yet it wasn't enough. Your hearts were hard. And so that's the description that's being laid out here. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, for 40 years, I loathe that generation. What's that, what's that mean? It literally is, is that, that we see there that God's righteous indignation, his just wrath. As he said, for 40 years, I said, there were consequences for their action and their sin because of their, un, their unbelief. And their unwillingness to soften their hearts. They were going to go through this period of 40 years in the, in the desert. And why? Because the people go astray, but, but where do they go astray at? They, they went astray in their hearts. So we see the actions, and the actions are easy to spot. But the actions fo- always follow the heart. And God's just not calling out the actions. God's calling out. He's saying, look, what really is going on is is what's going on in the heart. And then we saw the evidence of that in the actions that were displayed. They have not known my ways, verse 11 here he closes with. Therefore, because of that, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, because of that, I swore in my wrath. Therefore, because of their actions, I made a promise in the midst of his righteous indignation that they would not see rest. Literally what he said was, I promise unrest for them. That's really what he was saying is, because of that, his righteous indignation demanded that I promise unrest for them. For this period of 40 years. And the amazing thing about that is, is we see the grace of God. Even in that, it was for 40 years and for that generation. But the next generation was going to go into the promised land. Do you see that? The hard heart. So, so how, do we, how do we describe a hard heart? Here's signs of a hard heart. Number one, open disobedience. Open disobedience. I will have what I will have. I want it, and I'm going to go after it, and I don't care what's right or wrong. I don't care what God says or not. Open disobedience or defiance. Number two, bitterness. A lack of asking or granting forgiveness. Bitterness. How do we know we have a hard heart when we see just open disobedience or bitterness? Bitterness will will just infiltrate throughout the the body and and, and the attitude and, and actions. Number three, an unwillingness to listen to others. 
It doesn't matter who comes alongside. It doesn't matter what wise counsel is given, what loving counsel is given. I ain't listening. They don't know what they're talking about. I'm only listening to myself. An unwillingness to listen to others. Number four, an ungratefulness. An ungratefulness. A a lack of thanksgiving. A lack of gratefulness and It's the, I'm focusing on what I don't have instead of on what I do have. Ungratefulness. And then number five, a sign of a hard heart is a lack of joy and peace. A lack of joy and peace. A hard heart, direct defiance against God is always going to bring heartache and unrest. Therefore, I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. So we see here the title of the message is we see a glimpse of the God of rest. And as I was studying through this the last couple of weeks, I was really fascinated with that concept of, of the God of rest. And, and we see through Psalm 95, we see this analogy of the, the wanderings in the wilderness and, and, and that time of wandering in the wilderness was ended by, as we saw, the death of Moses and then Joshua leading the people of God into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. And so we see this idea of, of, the, of the promised land was the place of rest for them. It was going to be their final destination for the nation of Israel and we see it's, it's really it's a type or, or an example of the God of rest and the, and the rest that God promises us for eternity. And so we see the parallels that are going on between the two. And they did not experience God's rest because of their disobedience and their sin. But God promised that and then we saw it come to fruition. And that's what they were celebrating in that festival. You know, as we see that concept of God at rest, we we started off in Hebrews chapter 3, and we saw this quote in Hebrews 3, and and we've walked through now Psalm 95, but Hebrews 4 actually continues on and gives some explanation to that rest. And in Hebrews 4, uh, verses 9 through 11, we see it, where he gives some explanation of, of what does this mean, this God of rest, and And listen here as as I read Hebrews 4, starting in verse 9, it says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So when you come to Christ, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are then entering into the rest that God promises. It's both the rest here and now, but with the ultimate culmination of what will take place in eternity, of our promised land for the believer. And he uses that term, the God of rest, and the phrase there with the Sabbath rest. 
For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And so we have the times of, of work throughout the week, and then we had that, that, that day of Sabbath rest. And just like God created the world in six days, and he rested on the seventh, verse 10 is saying, in the same way, you will go through this time of, of struggle and toil, and then you will have your rest the same that God had his rest on the seventh day. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one will fall short of disobedience. So what do we see? What will prevent us from God's rest? Disobedience. What prevented the children of Israel from experiencing God's rest? Their disobedience that led to the wandering in the wilderness. So God, the God of rest, what does that look like? Well, Here's a, a description of a God of rest. Rest, joy, peace. Remember, the absence of conflict does not necessarily mean peace. It can be avoidance at times. Peace is when there is calm in the midst of a storm. When, even when things aren't going so well, and yet there's still joy in the midst of that because of who God is and God's sustaining in our life and the promise that is to come. So peace and joy. We see also a confidence of salvation. A confidence of salvation. The, the, rest, the, the promise of, of rest that will come is a firm confidence that we can know for sure that we'll spend eternity with God in heaven that we have been forgiven of our sins, that we have been reconciled with the holy God. It's the assurance of salvation. 1 John 5 says these things were written that you may know that you have eternal life. We don't have to go through life guessing. We don't have to go through life hoping and crossing our fingers and, and doing whatever it is we try to do, but we can know for sure that we have a relationship with the creator of the universe. That's worth getting excited about, isn't it? That's worth celebrating. Not only that, though, we see a reliance on his strength. We see the God of rest. We see reliance on his strength. Day in and day out, in the ups and downs of life, through the easy times, but even through the hard times, when we don't have the strength to do it, and yet God then provides the grace that we need in the moment and the strength that we need, and God sustains us and carries us through those times. It's the promise of the God of rest, and not only that, then the assurance of a future eternal home. The assurance of a future eternal home. It's the security that comes when Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you to be with me, and there you'll spend eternity. That's the rest that is described here. This psalm is a psalm about worship. It's the call for us to bend our wills and renew our walk with Christ, the one who brings true rest, both now and for eternity. Have you experienced that rest? There are some, I'm sure, that have come into this place, and rest is the last thing that would be described of your life. Unrest would be a better description. 
a lot of toil, a lot of pain, but not a lot of rest, and definitely not the hope of an eternity of rest with God. I, I invite you, really, the, the call here today is, if that's where you at, where you are at, then the call is, is, is to come, to worship your God. We say it's not easy, but it's as simple as ABC. First, it starts with admitting that you're a sinner. Usually not a tough thing for any of us to, because we know our sin. Admitting that you are a sinner and believing in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for my sin. He died for my sins. But that's not all. He rose again on the third day. We have a hope of resurrection of the eternal rest because he is alive today. Admitting and believing, but not just that. It actually requires that we have that moment, we put the stake in the ground, and we confess him as Lord. We say, it's a point where you're saying, you now have control of my life. I'm, I'm no longer, I'm turning my back on all the things that I have been worshiping, and I'm now going to say, I am following you, I am worshiping you, you now are my shepherd, and I am in your flock, your sheep, I'm following you. That's the, that's the invitation today, if that's where you're at. Maybe for many in this place, you have done that. And yet, as you're going through, still that, that hard heart still keeps creeping in. And while you still have the security of salvation, but yet you see the struggle and the hardships that come because disobedience always brings hardship. And so it's a call to renew your walk with Christ today, to lift him up, to worship and celebrate him, not just in the words that come out and the songs that come out, but also in the actions and obedience of our life. A couple months ago, um, I ran a Spartan race. Yeah, I know. I'm seeing all the surprised looks on people's faces down front. Thank you. You're actually pretty accurate. So like 10 months before that, my brother in Costa Rica calls up. Always a, a, a scary thing. I got a great idea. Let's sign up for this race. We got 10 months to get in shape. And so we signed up for this race. And, and uh, in the middle of June, we went up to the Chicago area and ran this Spartan race. I don't know if you know anything about these races. Not many people have run those and similar things like that, but there's like 23 obstacles. This one was eight and a half miles long, and my brothers and I and my son and Pastor Mike and, and his son Connor ran the race, and, and we ran it as a team, which is a very good thing. I'm so glad that we ran it as a team. Unfortunately, you know, when you're doing things with a team, you, you generally don't want to be that guy. <laughs> I was that guy. Excuse me. When you're going as a team, you can only go as fast as your weakest person. <laughs> Let's just say we didn't go very fast. I learned to do a lot of burpees. If you don't know what a burpee is, that's all right. It was 95 degrees. The problem is, really, if I'm honest, I didn't really prepare for this race. What I kind of envisioned in my mind and what... It, the shape that I needed to be in wasn't really what 
was required on that day. I, with the help of my teammates, finished that race. But I'll be honest, it was one of the toughest things that I've done. And unfortunately, I really slowed them down in the process. Part of it was you, you actually, for about two miles of it, kind of spread out. You, you were just going through mud, like about this deep. I mean, at one point, my brother lost half of his shoe in the mud. And <laughs> it was just struggle. And, and then you, you would get close to the end. And, and, and at one point, you could see the finish line. But yet, there was a couple of big barriers. And one of them was the most tough barrier that I had to do that I, I literally, I, I finally was able to do it with help. And I got to the top and started to climb down and had to wait because I was going to pass out. And then as everybody was celebrating, I was off in the woods because I thought I was going to throw up. <laughs> and so as we come across the finish line and you jump over the fire and everybody's coming in and the great celebration and they've got this big chunk of metal, these medals that they give you, which, hey, you earn it in that race, but, and they put these things on there, and, and all the rest of these guys are, especially Mike's son, Connor, and my son, and they, these young guys, they've got it, and they're slapping high fives, and they're celebrating, and, and I'm, and they're giving you food and drinks, and, and, and I'm thinking, if I put anything in my body, you're going to come right back, you don't want, <laughs> and I'm like, almost falling down, completely exhausted, and then they, you, they hose you all down, and, and over a period of time, I could finally <laughs> make it to the, to the van. And, and so Tiffany was driving, thank goodness, because we had a three-hour drive back, and, and Thomas and then Mike and Connor were in the van, and I'm in the far back seat <laughs> like this <laughs> with my medal around my neck <laughs> because I earned it. <coughs> Excuse me. When I was thinking that's the, the, the God of rest and after struggle, and then I, I will say, well, I could hardly move. They stopped about an hour into the trip home and stopped to, to get some supper uh, from there, and everybody starts to get in. And I'm thinking, I don't think I can move. And I'm like, I wonder if they'll bring the food out to me. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, waddling in. And this was not fun. I'm going back out there where I can get some rest. Where after that great struggle and yet the, the, the sense of accomplishment and the, the rest that came, how much more is it going to be like in heaven? This is something I signed up for. It's relatively benign. You do these things to challenge yourself in that. But what was being laid out here, where, where this illustration breaks down is that what God's describing, though, is that the hardship that we're going through in life is because of our choice to disobey God. And disobedience always brings hardship. And we struggle and we fight because we want what we want. And as soon as we're willing to give that up and turn to God, we can start to experience the rest, the peace, the joy, the promise of salvation, the eternal home that will come and ultimate rest that will come one day. But it just requires us to let go of that stronghold that we have. And turn and experience that rest. That's the call from Psalm 95. So let me ask you. Do you have a hard heart today? 
There's a pretty strong warning that's laid out here. Maybe your hard heart has kept you from coming to Christ. And there is no peace. There is only unrest in your life. And so today, I say today is the day of salvation. There'll be many down front here. Love to talk with you afterwards and walk you through how you can come to a place of rest. It's not always easy. There's still struggle. But you now have the creator of the universe who's there to sustain you and to pull you through those tough times. And there's the promise of eternal salvation. Maybe you've already done that, and yet that, that, that disobedience, that hard heart still creeps in. And, and we still have that tendency of going astray. Today may be the day that we need to renew our worship of God. To renew our worship, our celebration. And may God be lifted up in our hearts and may God be praised and worshiped and celebrated in our actions. Not just when we come together corporately, but each day of this coming 